Welcome to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. This week at the Gray Zone, we're going to discuss a group of grifters who posed as frontline soldiers in Ukraine to raise massive amounts of money, gain fame, and who were ultimately exposed not only by independent journalists like ourselves, but finally by the New York Times. We're also going to cover the ICC's arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, which tumbled out of the Hague at around the same time as the indictment for Donald Trump. Are they somehow aligned in some kind of criminal enterprise? Or is the U.S., like countries it routinely condemns, jailing an opposition leader on a ticky-tack charge? We're going to discuss that today, along with the warrant for Putin and the Gray Zone's role in exposing the report that inspired that warrant as a complete fraud that debunks itself. But first, let's turn to the indictment of Donald Trump. We hadn't read it at the time we conducted this interview, and today he is being arraigned in a New York City court. So let's check out my conversation with my colleague Aaron Maté about the indictment of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, 24 hours after um, calling for peace in Ukraine, saying he would not have ever allowed this war to take place. I don't know if that's true or not. And declaring that he will stop World War III um, has been indicted. I'm not saying the indictment has anything directly to do with that, although it obviously, it to me, feels like an outgrowth of the Trump-Russia, Russiagate campaign to nail Trump. And we haven't seen the indictment yet, but it relate, relates to hush money Donald Trump paid a porn star, Stormy Daniels, um, to not talk about their affair. And I think it's really sad that American presidents have gone from sleeping with, gone, you know, are sleeping with porn stars when in the past we could expect American presidents to at least have the dignity to sleep with their interns or at least just have oral sex with them. I don't know if that constitutes sex or what the definition of is is, but this is where we are as a society. Aaron, what are your thoughts on the indictment of Donald Trump? Well, to me, this definitely feels like the never ending fallout from Russiagate uh, because again, liberals went all in on the dumbest cons- on the dumbest conspiracy theory of all time that, the president was a Russian asset being blackmailed by Vladimir Putin. And that, of course, spectacularly failed because it was concocted. And so since then, there have been constant efforts to compensate. Uh, There was the first Trump impeachment over uh, Ukraine. Then there was the Russian bounties in Afghanistan, fake scandal. Then there was January 6th, where Trump actually did something. Trump actually did something (laughs) January 6th, but they couldn't really get him for inciting a riot uh, because... Uh, that's a hard thing to prove. And he also, I think in his comments when on January 6th, he said that we should be peaceful or something. So that was difficult. I do think they have him, by the way, on something in Georgia, from what I understand of what he did there and trying to pressure Georgia to come up with something that could validate his claims about the election. I think actually there's a, maybe there's a case there. But for whatever reason, they couldn't just wait on that one. And they had to trot out or ro- like roll out again this years-old case about paying um, hush money to Stormy Daniels and somehow coming up with the theory that that had to be done to help his campaign, when really 
I think Trump will argue that this is very standard for people to pay hush money payments to shut people up. Uh, John Edwards did that when he was caught having an affair. <laughs> he was acquitted. So I just see this as a never-ending attempt to compensate for Russiagate. And uh, I think ultimately, I mean, if you're looking at the political impact of this, I think this helps Trump. How can it not? It, it keeps him in the news and it, to his supporters, he can once again claim he's the victim of the deep state. So why people are expecting any different outcome than every other fa failed Trump so-called scandal before is beyond me. Yeah, for those who might not have the appropriate context, John Edwards was the populist Democratic North Carolina senator and Democratic presidential frontrunner and Prell hair model who had an affair with a grifter while his wife, who was considered his greatest presidential asset, Elizabeth Edwards, was dying of breast cancer. And emails were released where he had planned a rooftop wedding with his mistress in which Dave, the Dave Matthews band would perform at the wedding while his wife was on her deathbed. And, you know, as hard, as horrible as that is, the worst part of it was proposing Dave Matthews to play anywhere. Um, that really discredits him in my eyes. Um, and so Trump and Stormy Daniels are, you know, Stormy Daniels has brought been brought out at the center of this uh, by the Manhattan DA. She's been kind of lurking in the background all along. Stormy Daniels is like, when are they going to pull the Stormy Daniels card? Well, the Mueller investigation didn't find anything. We don't know if January 6th is going to lead anywhere to Trump. But the Manhattan DA has pulled this card, Alvin Bragg. He is a Democratic prosecutor. The Republicans are alleging that he was paid with $1 million through a Soros-funded NGO called Color of Change. Uh, and that they're calling him one of these Soros prosecutors that are soft on crime. And I think that's a really smart play by the Republicans, just from a completely Machiavellian, cynical political perspective, because it paints them into a corner. And this will be used to, as Aaron said, ramp up Trump's base ahead of the election. I think this prosecutor was previously unknown. So now he's a hero of the Democratic Party base and of Blue Anon. And that's, you know, for, for a uh, local prosecutor, I mean, I know New York is a big media market, but he would have otherwise been unknown. It's a power move. You would be incentivized to indict Donald Trump. However, Picayune, the violation might have been con compared to the massive violations our presidents always commit, whether of international law or domestic U.S. law. And there is something to that claim. So this is... Uh, shaping up to be another kind of culture war partisan battle that isn't actually about the rule of law. And I think what we're seeing, if Donald Trump is arrested, is we're seeing the mask lifting on the U.S. political system. And we hear constantly condemnations from the State Department of other countries arresting opposition leaders on trumped up charges, Navalny being one of them. Uh, well, the other countries can now point the finger at the U.S. and say the U.S. has jailed its top opposition leader on some ticky-tack charge for being like a sleazebag. Yeah. Um, the difference between him and Navalny, one principal difference is he's actually popular in his own country. Navalny, what does he pull at 2%? So I think this will discredit in, in the eyes of the world the shining city on the hill image of American democracy. Um. And uh, look, 
again, what are the details of this case? I mean, it's so boring that I, I haven't paid attention to it. But what I know is Michael Cohen paid Stormy Daniels. <laughs> he was reimbursed. He admitted in a letter or something that he was paying this out of his own funds and he was reimbursed. Um, now he's changing his tune. But of course, Michael Cohen is an indicted uh, felon and who's, who's had his own uh, financial issues and was convicted for it. And so it's just, he is a key figure in this case. And I just don't, it's just to me, it's all, it all, it all like going back to, you know, Russia and Ukraine, none of this would have happened if members of the elite didn't see Trump as such a threat to their rule. Not because he supports policies that threaten their rule, but because they just see him as an unsuitable steward of the global empire. He's too honest sometimes. He's too colorful. He's too reckless. He's too out of control. And so from the start, especially when he began calling for being nice with Russia, getting along with Russia, there was an effort to sabotage him. And this is just, to me, the continued uh, result of that. Um, even though he's done so many of his policies actually served the interests of the elite, his tax heist, uh, his policies about Russia, which I think helped bring us to the point we're in now. But because sometimes he spoke the truth, like he said, we're, we're in Syria to keep the oil rather than saying we're in Syria to spread democracy and fight ISIS. They don't like that. And so hence, yeah. uh, as a result, because he's still a political force, they have to undermine him where they can. And, and uh, lawfare is one way to do that. Well, here's Trump. 24 hours before being indicted. But if this thing is insolved by the time we have the election, which is possible, it won't be. And there's also possible we'll be in World War III with these idiots that are doing what they're doing. You could end up in a nuclear world war, which will make World War I and World War II look like patty cakes, okay? Uh, this unbelievable, because we have people that don't know what they're doing. But if it's not solved, I will have it solved in 24 hours with Zelensky and with Putin. And there's a very easy negotiation to take place, but I don't want to tell you what it is because then I can't use that negotiation. It'll never work. But there's a very easy negotiation to take place. I will have it solved within one day, a peace between them. Now, that's a year and a half. That's a long time. I can't. I mean, there is an easy negotiation. China just put it forward, but the Biden administration rejects it. It involves giving up a little bit of territory that's never coming back into Ukrainian hands. Imagine something not happening. Uh, the, the key the... with that is the war has to stop now because Ukraine is being obliterated. You know, whether there'll be nothing people... left. Well, I looked at pictures of cities that are literally yes, like a, it's like complete de demolition. I was in the construction business. You would demolish a building and you'd it looked like hundreds of these demolition sites. The build there wasn't a building standing. And these are cities for Ukraine. They were big cities, very big cities. Now, he hasn't really, in Kiev, he hasn't really set the missiles in. But at some point, he'll do that one, too. There's nothing standing. The other thing is many more people are dead and horribly injured than they're reporting. You know, when you see missiles hitting 15 buildings and 15 buildings falling to the ground and they're big buildings, there are a lot of people in those buildings. And then they say one person was injured. These are phony reports. Many, many people are being killed that you don't know, but you'll see that later so, on. So you'd prefer, if you were president, you think you could, you would have a negotiated settlement and within 24 hours. So that's pretty uncomfortable to have someone of Trump's stature out there 
talking like that. And it's interesting to note that he's speaking with Sean Hannity. It shows what a hack Hannity is because Hannity, he sits yeah. there night after night, pumping up the <laughs> war, calling for escalation, calling for assassinating Putin. And then as soon as he sits down with Trump, he's like, oh, so you'd negotiate. Oh, good. Oh, oh boy. Well, you're the master because I'm just I just follow the leader of the Republican Party, whoever it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the power that Trump has. So I definitely it's so obvious that this is an outgrowth of Russiagate and that if Trump were playing ball, this wouldn't have happened. It's obvious Alvin Bragg is going for national fame. It's obviously a partisan move. And it's obvious that Trump opened him up to this sort of thing, himself up to this sort of thing by being sleazy. Um, we haven't even seen the indictment yet, um, mm -hmm. but I wanted to introduce something that's kind of a, a novelty now at this point from my former career as a writer for the Daily Beast. Can you believe it? <laughs> the neocon daily beast that constantly attacks us. I worked for them for like a year until I started trying to do reporting from Palestine. And uh, I was at a, I just happened to be in Arizona and I heard that Stormy Daniels was um, performing by the airport at a strip club. She was kind of unknown at the time, but she was trying to, um, she was running against David Vitter, the Senator, the Republican right-wing Senator. And she was running, um, to kind of embarrass him for his dalliances with sex workers. And so I thought I'd just go down, go down the street. I like reached out to her PR team and they said, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, just come down to this hotel in the lobby and Stormy will meet you. So oh, I've got to watch a 25 second ad here. So while we're watching that, I will uh, just describe the situation. Um, Okay, we can skip the ad. Here we go. On Plaza Hotel. It's Arizona. <laughs> That's me in 2007. Airport, and I've learned that uh, Stormy Daniels, adult then. industry actress and producer, is staying here. And she's going to discuss with us her potential primary run in the Republican primary in Louisiana against Senator David Vitter. Uh, my name is Stormy Daniels. I'm in the adult film industry. I've been with Wicked Pictures for about seven years as a contract performer, writer, and director. And so you're getting involved in the Louisiana Senate race. Apparently so. Uh, I had actually nothing to do with it. Uh, I was notified about it through a friend who sent me a link saying, oh my gosh, you're a genius. This is so awesome. And I looked at it. I had nothing to do with this, but it is genius. Yeah. I wish I could take credit for it, but actually I can't. It was a group of guys down in Louisiana uh, that put the whole site together and um, I have people put sites about me all the time and I usually shut them down pretty quickly, but this was one was just really a whole well done and operation amusing, so behind her already so in 2000. You, would you enter the Republican primary against David Vitter? Um, I haven't decided yet. I've never been involved in politics before, but, uh, apparently they are calling me to duty and if that's what it takes, then that's what I will do. I mean, it's interesting now in the current moment because she's talking about being called to duty about a political operation being set up. Um, and she's kind of being put up as a prop and a spokesperson. And it's obviously a partisan democratic operation. And um, she's soaking in the PR and the possibility for getting her brand out. And uh, David Vitter made headlines when he confessed um, to being a client of the DC madam to um, paying for sex with several high priced uh, sex workers. Um, do you think his hypocrisy is fair game in the race? 
and, and that's what I was going to say. I personally have no issues with his sexual activities or his sexual preferences or whatever it is that he wants to do. Um, my issue with him, I mean, who am I to judge, right? My issue with him is that he's a hypocrite. And, you know, call me what you will, but you can't call me a hypocrite. And would you challenge David Vitter to a, de to a debate right now? So, yeah, it goes on and on. And uh, I had a long talk with Stormy after the interview. But what's interesting here is, I mean, when you think about blackmail and how much, you know, Jeffrey Epstein compromised powerful political people. Donald Trump was around Jeffrey Epstein. Bill Clinton was around Jeffrey Epstein. Um, you know, I have questions about Stormy Daniels. She talked to me afterwards about how she is a really committed political activist. Uh, she was involved in liberal causes at the time. She was, you know, pretty articulate. She was not a stupid person, um, although she was, you know, it was kind of demented talking to her and her, um, her producer about like how he, you know, she got him a vasectomy for his birthday and like just the weird culture of porn kind of disturbing. But here you can see she's already being injected into partisan politics at that time. Then Trump proceeds to go ahead and initiate some kind of relationship with her. I don't know how he got to meet her. And this is where it's led him. And she's raising tons of money online right now. And she's emerged as this kind of hero of the liberal world. Um, so I thought about that in that random interview I conducted back in the day. In the, and uh, it, it also shows how stupid Trump is. I mean, just to open yourself up and expose yourself like that. Well, enough women have accused him of, uh, you know, harassment and, the, and worse abuse um, that uh, it seems as if, uh, you know, this was a case where it's led to this for him. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, again, I, it's, a, it's a thing where I just never paid attention to the details because so many politicians get caught up in this kind of stuff. Right. So why should I care more about Trump's? But um, that's interesting. I didn't know she had that background. That's uh, that's one more twist to the story. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's it's uh, something. Well, the one one the con, one piece of context I never got was how she hooked up with Trump. How well, did that happen? Yeah, uh, was telling yeah. me in that interview that she liked to go to um, Motley Crue concerts and like take out her breasts and flash the like. Um, Tommy Lee and sure. uh, Nikki Six or whoever they are. Yeah. No, I mean it's Mick Mick Mars. I'm getting the names of these hair band players wrong, but um, that's like what she was into. And somehow she hooks up with Trump, who was, you know, he's for decades been a hard. It's not like he, it's easy to get to Trump. But Trump has harassed a lot of women, so you know it's not implausible that she just was another one who he randomly met and uh because a lot of women have accused him of this stuff and yeah i uh, guess i mean you, you think about <laughs> you think about his record and she's not alone no um, no no i mean i would like to hear a statement from melania i don't think she'd stand with him like uh, david vitter's wife stood with him during his press conference you know when the, they always get caught the senators or the governors with some sex worker and they do the press conference they always have this look on their face like and their wives are always there, but Melania was never with Trump for any of this. So props to Melania. I, I, but again, I think there's more to the story. There is more of an operation there. Uh, if Stormy Daniels was involved, it's obviously an operation now and Russiagate looms in the background and the war on diplomacy. Trump is a loose cannon. They don't want him back in the office, back in office. Uh, and 
Oh, go ahead, Aaron. Well, I just want to say, I think two things are true. One, I mean, we heard Trump say in that Access Hollywood tape, you know, just grab him by the genitals, right? And just bragging about how he harasses women. So to me, uh, it's uh, this is a case where yeah. they, have, they have someone willing to 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 bring a case and and to speak out. And certainly people who want to undermine Trump for the wrong reasons, including the fact that he's a, um, sometimes called for diplomacy, not a proxy war in Russia, certainly will take advantage of this thing. So I, I think it's a matter of both things being true here. And my, my last point, since you brought up those comments on a, those Access Hollywood tapes where he's talking about grabbing them by the genitals in so many words, that was supposed to be, that was like the Hillary Clinton campaign's last minute bomb. That was their October surprise that they were dropping on Trump and it was supposed to tank him. And if you looked at the polls, the polls were showing that Hillary was narrowly ahead of Trump after that tape was released. And then the FBI announces that they are investigating Anthony Weiner and possibly Hillary, no, possibly Hillary Clinton for uh, helping to cover up Anthony Weiner's own sexual perversion. Anthony Weiner is a sexual deviant who is heavily involved with the Clinton campaign, was, in, was the husband of her closest body person, Huma Abedin, who went everywhere with her. And he was sending pictures of himself to underage women who he met online uh, and was involved with, uh, you know, so, like someone even lower than Stormy Daniels in the porn subculture, uh, Sydney Leathers. <laughs> and, and so that came out through the FBI. It was supposedly a pro-Trump division of the FBI. And that tanked Hillary in the polls at the last second and overcame the Access Hollywood tapes. Now, if you think about this story dropping now, who is this story bad for? It's bad for Zelensky. Zelensky is going to be wiped out of the news cycle at this point, as he is desperately begging for more munitions and more weapons and more aid. And I think we'll be hearing less and less from him. And if we think about his relationship with Trump, I mean, Trump actually sat down with him and said, why don't you just shut up and go work it out with Putin and stop begging me for stuff? So this is what we're going to be hearing about for, I think, the rest of the, all through the summer. Oh my God. It's not going to, I mean, it's a great time to be, in the ratings department at CNN or MSNBC, this has given them a huge bump. For, but for everybody else, it's just going to be, I think, really annoying. At least with Russiagate, you had the intrigue of a president being accused of being a, a traitor. You know, that's kind of interesting. Um, is the president yeah. secretly involved in a conspiracy with, with Russia? But this is uh, recycling a case that's been litigated, at least in public, years ago. And it's going to dominate everything. And that's what we're in for now. Yep. Yep. And la we got a question about who Trump's lawyer is. Um, so let, let me just quickly play a quick statement by Trump's lawyer. So you can make a judgment on his legal representation and what their argument is here. Um, and Trump, as, as uh, you know, anyone would have advised him to do is hired a telegenic young female lawyer. But what was your reaction to the indictment? Were you shocked? Yes, I was shocked. I, I think, uh, I'm not sure, maybe not shocked. I was, um, Her name is Alina you know, it was Haba. another, here we go again. Uh, this has been his life since 2016 when he went down the escalator. You have to remember they did this with the Russia hoax. They tried to take his kids down. They did this with his first impeachment, his second impeachment. 
And now we have a DA who has decided to bring what to me is the weakest and oldest uh it's not even a crime. I'm not even sure what it is. It's, it's, it's barely a misdemeanor. He is somebody who in the state of New York has said that he doesn't believe in putting people in jail and he believes in changing the federal crimes to misdemeanors. But for Donald Trump has reversed it. He's, you know, his pack was, was gassed up by George so Soros. A you, very you describe big, it as uh, barely a mis misdemeanor. Then are you saying that uh, as far as you understand what he's being accused of, he did actually do it? No. It's a misdemeanor to do a book and record keeping violation. That is what we're understanding this to be. We still haven't seen the indictment. Um, and the way this went, as everybody knows, is what Michael Cohen testified to, what his lawyers have said, which is that he initiated a payment to somebody who was effectively trying to extort him. And all I can say to you is this, I'm a lawyer and I represent a lot of people. And if people sign NDAs and get paid for it, or as an attorney, I pay people who try and extort someone because they just don't want to deal with it. And then those clients are somehow going to get indicted publicly, let alone a former president. That is a very sad state of affairs and very politically uh, motivated. So I think uh, his lawyer seems pretty effective there. And she's blending the kind of political appeal to Trump's base with the legal defense. And you go to Trump's website, he's raising money off this right now. Of course. Of course, this case is so weak. They know it. It's just they don't have anything else. I think from the point of view, if you're a devoted anti-Trump partisan, that's your cause. I think from your point of view, you should have waited to see what happened in Georgia. Because I do think from what I understand, there is something to that. That one. This one, I think in the court of public opinion, which ultimately what is what matters, I don't think is going to go against Trump. I just don't because no one cares. No one cares. No one cares. But no one cared. As you mentioned, Max, like the access Hollywood tape didn't sway people to vote against Trump. So how yeah. will this, you know, this will only, I think, uh, help him. And it will only just waste so much of everyone's time having to hear about it for the next however long. Because, you know, after the indictment, whenever it does come out, it's going to be a long time until trial. So that's a long time for the media to squeeze as much money out of this as they can. Yeah. Reach out hype. Yeah, well, we'll see if we have a jailed opposition leader on our hands <laughs> or a uh, second-term president. Yeah. It's going to be one of the two, probably. You've been listening to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. That was my take with my colleague, Aaron Maté, on the indictment of Donald Trump, who's being arraigned today in a New York district court. Now we turn to a group of grifters led by MSNBC commentator Malcolm Nance, who presented themselves to the American public as war heroes, military veterans, and frontline fighters in the war for democracy in Ukraine, and who have turned out to be, as I said, a bunch of fraudulent grifters We've exposed them for years at the gray zone, but finally the New York Times caught on and published a devastating profile exposing these characters as the clowns and liars that they are. Take a listen. James Vasquez, do you remember, do you know who I'm talking about, Aaron? I don't know. Okay, there's this guy, James Vasquez, who is like a home improvement contractor from Connecticut or Massachusetts or something. He went to Ukraine and started posting all these videos of himself and the 
and guys in Ukrainian uniforms blowing up Russian tanks. So they would be standing by blown up tanks in the Kiev Oblast. And then he was raising tons of money back home from like suburban housewives who thought he was this great hero and saying that he was a uh, U.S. military veteran. The New York Times has finally exposed him and Malcolm Nance for running just a sham operation not actually doing any real fighting. Vasquez completely lied about his military background. He's deleted his Twitter account, which had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers. He's gone dark. He's disappeared. Malcolm Nance, I don't know what he has to say about any of this, but Malcolm Nance is now involved in a legal dispute with other people involved in the International Brigade. Nance has uh, accused people who've uh, criticized him of being Russian assets, and he launched said he was launching a counterintelligence investigation into them. And he's teamed up with another guy who lied up, lied about his military service to try to take control of the International Brigade. And of course, Nance went to Ukraine claiming that he was fighting on the front lines. He was on Bill Maher actually claiming he was on the front lines. I, I might as well pull up my little thread I did about him. But uh, he wasn't anywhere near the front lines. He was in what he called a safe house to do media operations. And this was wasn't known there, all along. Wasn't there some headline about Nance? Like Malcolm Nance is done talking. Yeah. Right? That was his talking. own it, statement. You know? that was a statement. Yeah. But of course, all he did was go to Ukraine and talk uh, because he wasn't doing any actual fighting. We um, might as well do like a real quick segment since we got on this topic. With, okay. So, yeah, I mean... The New York Times has ex finally exposed these characters. Malcolm Nance, a former Navy cryptologist and MSNBC commentator, arrived in Ukraine last year and made a plan to bring order and discipline to the International Legion, which <laughs> Americans have gone to fight in. Instead, he became enmeshed in the chaos. Yeah, right. Uh, he's involved in a messy, distracting power struggle that plays out on Twitter where he taunted one former ally as fat. Malcolm Nance is not exactly a model of physical fitness, by the way, and an associate of a verified con artist. He accused a pro-Ukraine fundraising group of fraud, providing no evidence. I'm sure he's probably right there. Then he wrote a counterintelligence report trying to get them fired. He accused one Legion official of fraudulently trying to buy a house on an Australian reality show with money she didn't have. He called her a potential Russian spy. He also said that about Glenn Greenwald. Uh, she denied the accusations and uh, reported her to Ukrainian in counterintelligence. He's left Ukraine but he's fundraising with this guy, Ben Lackey, who said that he was a Marine, but in fact said he's an, but is in fact is even lying about the fact that he's an assistant manager at Longhorn Steakhouse. He's, uh, he worked as a server, not an assistant manager, according to Longhorn Steakhouse. And the Pentagon said he had no military experience. So this is Nance's boy. Now here's Nance on Bill Maher. And and so you're on the front lines. Yeah, yeah. And you're you're shooting Lie. at the bad guys. Yeah, and uh, and there's a lot more than just shooting at the bad guys. First off, you're right. I was age 60 when I passed the the commando course that I went through. And uh, woo, wow. Wow. just straight up lying on national TV. What's even funnier is that I knew that to get past artillery, I had to beat that 36 year old ex former marine that was that was with me. But you know, when you go there, you there are a lot of. I think he might be referring to Ben Lackey right there, calling him a former Marine when he's a server at Longhorn Steakhouse who's lying about being an assistant manager. Of different components to your job. My first job was doing intelligence work. 
Uh, then my second job was an infantry uh, intelligence officer on the front line. And then my third job was a special operations uh, operator. Woo! All right, so the lies go on and on. Um, but Malcolm Nance actually acknowledged that, I mean, here's what he actually said at the time when he was in Ukraine. And he was he gave an interview. I think this was to the New Yorker. I'm not sure what it was. Right now, part of my duty is to the press. They were well aware I was a high-level asset. So instead <laughs> of putting me out on the front line, I'm in a safe house talking to people like you. So he acknowledges <laughs> that he was never on the front line. He's in a safe house. And it, I was like, look, look, I would go looking for Malcolm Nance's activity on Twitter, thinking like James Vasquez, he'd be posting videos from the field about what a badass he was. And he didn't even do that. He was like tweeting about Trump the whole time and acknowledging that, you know, this was all fake. Um, and he's had ahead. a great racket going for a long time. Uh, during Russiagate, he presented himself as a national security expert. He wrote a book, I think, that even came out before the election or close to it, saying how Russia hacked the election. So he was really yeah. ahead of the time in the Russiagate. Yeah. <laughs> it was like before it even happened. <laughs> yeah. he, he did a great job. Yeah, I looked up his uh, service records in the Navy because he said he was this uh, high-level Navy intelligence yeah. officer who oversaw operation rooms of 300 men. He actually said that on another Bill Maher episode. Yeah. And Malcolm Nance is listed as a basic Arabic analyst who was doing crypt like basic-level cryptology for the Navy in the Persian Gulf. And he worked for a time as a contractor in the UAE and was pos positioning himself as kind of a low-level war on terror expert. And then all of a sudden, and he wrote some book about jihadists, and then all of a sudden Russiagate happened. So he's overnight, he's a Russia expert. He's never been to Russia, as far as I know, speaks no Russian, you know, fake. But the New York Times has now finally lifted the mask a little bit on these characters. And I think it's a signal of where the proxy war is going. Welcome back to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. We're now going to turn from the Ukraine proxy war to the ICC's arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. Oddly, this warrant had nothing to do with anything that took place on the battlefield in Ukraine, where countless atrocities have been said to have been committed by Russian forces, at least if you believe Western media. The warrant instead pertains to Russia transferring thousands of children from ethnically Russian areas in eastern Ukraine, including and especially the independent republics of Donetsk and Lugansk, to safe areas inside Russia, and particularly to summer camp-like programs where children are given free cultural education programs. Together with my colleague Jeremy Lafredo, we exposed the inspiration for this ICC warrant as a State Department-funded report by the Yale Humanitarian Research Lab, whose content actually debunks itself and the ICC's warrant. What's more, Jeremy Lafredo interviewed the author of that report, Nathaniel Raymond, and in conversation with Jeremy, he further contradicted the claims he's made in public and the claims by the ICC. So what is the reality of this arrest warrant against Putin, which clearly aims to obstruct negotiations with the Russian leader and thereby extend the Ukraine proxy war? 
to allow more violations, abuses, and atrocities to take place. Well, let's take a listen to my conversation with my colleague Aaron Mate and Jeremy Lafredo about the ICC's arrest warrant against Vladimir Putin. So let's bring Jeremy in and we're going to play some of his exclusive video report for you and talk to him about his conversation with the author of this very flawed report. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah, so I was I was there. Um, I was in Moscow in November and I was invited to go check out one of these. Um, they called it a school that had children from um, Donetsk and Lugansk and they were practicing music. I was there. I was I thought everything was, you know, really great. These kids were learning music. They were eating. They were away from the front lines. It, was, it seemed like a, a beautiful program. Fast forward four months. Um, I'm seeing camps like these being accused of um, war crimes and human rights abuses and evidence of of of, of, of abduction and kidnapping. And I, I'm thinking this is the same thing that I, I saw. So I went back and I looked at all my interviews and all my footage. And um, the, that's what the report is. Okay, well, let's let's take a look at this excellent report, another excellent report by Jeremy. Um, this is like a documentary style report from inside the Donetsk, the Donbass Express. Re-education camps. But that assumption would be wrong. I visited one of these camps four months ago, unaware that it would be so important to future war propaganda. In November, I was on assignment for Rebel News in Moscow. Mostly, I was doing streeters, seeing what regular Russian people thought about the war. But after meeting someone whose wife was pretty important on the Russian music scene, and after introducing myself, I was invited to an old Soviet-era hotel in Pokrovsky. It turns out it was one of these so-called camps or schools that prompted allegations of kidnapping, abduction, re-education, and eventually an ICC arrest warrant. Funded by the Russian government, this hotel was turned into a makeshift sleepaway camp for children from Donetsk and Lugansk who were interested in the musical arts and whose parents wanted them away from the front lines. They called it the Donbass Express. I was able to look around and speak to children and teachers. The children stayed in the hotel and the teachers slept in cottages that surrounded the property. Peter Lundstrom is a professional violinist and a teacher at the school. No, this school is called Donbass Express. You talked to Peter Lundstrom. He was the instructor of the students there. Um, t talk a little bit, a bit about your exchanges with him um, while visiting the camp, but also since this report has come out, I know you've been in touch with Peter. What does he say about it? Well, um, I went to the camp. I was invited the same day. Um, no one knew I was I was coming. He was very welcoming. He gave me a tour. He let me watch them play music. He let me speak to the kids. He um, even asked kids, you know, because they trust him. They like him. I'm walking around. I don't speak Russian. Um, clearly, I'm an American. He's asking if I'll, if they would maybe talk to me on camera. Um, he invited me to have lunch with uh, with everyone. Um, they have like a lunch cafeteria type thing where they have three meals a day. Um, everyone, all the kids are laughing and having fun, and they go back and they play their music. Um, very welcoming, very nice guy. Um, he's the, I, I spoke to one other teacher there, similarly, very nice. Um, he's a professional violinist, so he's normally yeah. touring around Russia. And so he actually stopped doing that to help organize this camp because he, 
you know, he's he wants to do what he can for the children in, you know, in Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, and since um, publishing the report, I talked to him while I was doing it, um, you know, just making sure all the translations were correct and making sure that, you know, none of the children in the videos are at risk of, you know, retribution from the Ukrainian government if I post this video. Um, and, you know, he he was very thankful that um, that the video came out and that he's in the video and that the kids are in the video. And people know that the Donbass Express, they want, they're trying to organize another one very soon. Um, but yeah, no, everyone was... Well, the children was, all went home. They weren't held as hostages in this center or the they children were there for two weeks and they, and they went home. And, um, it's funny, even, you know, even the report will say most of the, you might've highlighted this already in our article. Most of the children have the consent of their parents and they return home on their scheduled dates. Um, they'll say that deep within the report, but you know, on CNN or on, on the news and in his interviews with the mainstream media, he'll say that these children are, in fact, uh, you know, abducted. Right. Let's continue a little bit with the report where Peter discusses some of the threats to the children, uh, where they're from, uh, from the Ukrainian government. And this is, and let's consider that Yale HRL, the state department funded unit and the ICC apparently want to send these children all back right now to that area. But for those who are just listening, this student is from the Donetsk. Shooting is everywhere. People are not tired, but they want peace. He said that he's grateful to be at the Donetsk Press. Here you can see some typical rehearsal a lesson at this so-called re-education. There's another student. She's saying here we continue our musical studies despite what's going on around Because it gives us relief. The Yale report accuses these kids. So you actually interviewed students as well in the camp. Um, what, what would you say they're mood was about being there, about going back home. And one of the primary complaints or allegations in the Yale HRL report transmitted through the ICC is that these children are basically being brainwashed, russified, uh, um, patriotic educations imposed on them. Did you see any of that? No, I didn't see any of that. And, you know, if we just look at, you know, maybe picture this happening, uh, something like this in America, you have, you know, um, economically um, underprivileged people um, who live, you know, maybe a few hours outside of New York City and, you know, they get paid an all-exclusive, um, you know, all-expenses-paid trip into New York City to practice um, their passion for two weeks. Everything's paid for. And back home, they were, you know, living under the threat of, of, of dying and being um, bombarded by bombs and now they're safe in a city um, doing what they love with kids um, who are similar to them. And they didn't want to leave. They don't want to go home back to the to the war zone. They they want to stay. You know, this was essentially a vacation for them. They didn't even think it of it as like, um, you know, something that was political. They, they were like, we are being um, allowed this this trip to get uh, taught music by professional teachers. And it, it was a it was a privilege for everyone. I from what I could tell. And you got to speak to the author 
hmm. of this Yale HRL report, which has inspired the ICC warrant against Vladimir Putin about your experience at the Donbass Express. And you essentially conducted an interview with him about his own work. Um, how did that hmm. interview or discussion come about? And what did Nathaniel Raymond say when you challenged him or asked him critical questions about his report? Um, I decided that I was going to email him and um, I essentially sent him an email saying, I would love to tell you about um, the Donbass Express, considering that, you know, you, you guys didn't go to any of these camps that you were writing about and being uh, funded to write about. Um, I've actually been there, unlike anyone on your team. So I would love to tell you about it. So he said, okay. And we hopped on the phone and I told him about it. And um, not like he said in the news, but during our phone call, he said that most of the camps that he's written about, which is um, their report contains 43 camps. He was like, a good number of the 40 are just like the Donbass Express. They're culture education, cultural education. They're like, he compared the camp's um, nature to teddy bears, meaning they're, they're safe and everyone's happy about it. And so he said that on the phone and he did not say that on, on CNN or um, anything like that. Um, I thought that was an interesting admission. Yeah, I mean, he kept, uh, you know, I've seen a transcript of your conversation with him. We worked on this article together. He kept saying that this, what you visited was a re-education camp. But at the same time, he said that the vast majority of the 43 camps that his team investigated by satellite and by, you know, telegram, social media, were teddy bears, that they were cultural centers. So it kind of blows out of the water the claims he made on CNN. Um, definitely. It, it definitely blows the nothing. Nothing he said on the CNN. Um, he said during our one on one phone call. And another point I'll highlight from the phone call is in the beginning, I said, why? Why don't you go to any of these camps? Like why? If you're going to you know, do this giant um, report that's going to influence a international criminal court arrest warrant um, for the president of, of Russia, why didn't you just try to go to one? And he said, well, we're considered extensions of U.S. intelligence in Russia, so we would never be allowed to do that. And um, insinuating that he's not an extension of U.S. intelligence. And then later right. in the call, he says that they um, are in contact with U.S. intelligence. They're getting their um, they're getting access to certain satellites above Russia from U.S. intelligence. He said um, that the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command provided them access to their satellites. <laughs> That's the yes. Pentagon. So they worked with the Pentagon. And he also stated that uh, the U.S. National Intelligence Council, which basically coordinates between the CIA and uh, private policy, uh, like think tanks and policy groups, applied a lot of pressure to his team at Yale to document the Russian government's operations after the Russian military entered Ukraine. He said that he said that U.S. intelligence put pressure on the Yale team to come up with something. Those are his direct words. <laughs> well, uh, listen, that's that's damning. When I uh, whatever a few uh, days ago was just pointing out on Twitter just randomly because I haven't looked into this like you guys have. And this isn't this is incredible what you've done. Um, I was pointing out that the only source I could see for all these claims about a mass Russian abduction program of children is State Department funded studies. And then people would say yeah. in response, well, just because the State Department is funding, it doesn't mean it's serving the State Department's agenda mm -hmm. or the State Department's involved because the State Department funds all kinds of things. But you're reporting here that actually 
the author of the study has admitted that there was direct pressure from the was the U.S. intelligence. It's worse than that, Aaron. Uh, Jeremy, you asked Nathaniel Raymond straight up about the State Department role in this report. What did he say? Um, he said that at first they were um, focusing on um, human rights abuses in Afghanistan. And because of pressure from the State Department, they actually started to focus on 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 Ukraine. So he they got their direct um, marching orders, marching orders from from the State Department, from the U.S. government to look at exactly what they're looking at now. So it's it's the opposite of independent. And those orders came two weeks before Russia invaded mm -hmm. Ukraine. So as the U.S. intelligence apparatus was starting its a uh, whole drumbeat about a Russian invasion while Ukrainian forces were massed at the contact line and starting to shell the Donbass, he got his marching orders. Mm -hmm. So the State Department appears to have been guiding this whole project. And Raymond's role is just he's the satellite analyst technology expert who is brought in almost like as a hired gun. I think what he said, um, he said that we were put on standby. This is the two weeks before the invasion. Yeah. So he's almost speaking as if he's, you know, a soldier. You know, my team was put on standby before the invasion. Um, this is his correct quote. We were told to stand you know, by and form a squad. And then by spring, we knew the good stuff was happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, um, I can't wait to read your article. This has just come out at thegrayzone.com. And I want to issue a challenge here to the people who are going to be upset by this article. And this stands for everything we do uh, that where we challenge a very dominant propaganda narrative. We get ca called all kinds of names. We get called apologists for whatever government that is being targeted by these allegations. But we never get a written rebuttal. I've never gotten a written rebuttal to anything I've reported on the OPCW serial cover-up scandal. I've gotten all kinds of people calling me names and trying to harass people who publish me or who give me awards. And the same thing applies here. I'd like to see a written rebuttal to Jeremy and Max's report from its detractors, not just name calling on Twitter, but see if you can actually refute the reporting that Max and Jeremy have done here. And I'm betting, just like I never saw any written rebuttal to Max's reporting on the reality inside Xinjiang when China was accused of a genocide and Max went through the actual, just as you guys have done here, Max went through the reports of the people pushing these allegations and showed that the data doesn't support them. Um, I'd like to see these people or I'm predicting that, these, that there, there will be a similar lack of response here, just like there hasn't been a written response to reporting on Xinjiang or on the OPCWC or cover-up scandal. I'm predicting there won't be any kind of written rebuttal here because I think as you guys are, you're, it seems like your report here is based a lot on what the Yale study itself says. The problem is yeah. no one ever actually reads these studies. Mm -hmm. They just parrot whatever the yep. State Department talking point is about them. Great point. And, you know, unlike with our work on Xinjiang, which was really just fact-checking Adrian Zentz, who was the one person brought in to cover this issue from afar without gaining any access to the camps. We did gain access here to the subject of this ICC arrest warrant and this Yale HRL State Def Department funded report. And what Jeremy did was, I think, something that other journalists couldn't do because he's one of the few Western journalists to have actually gone to one of these places was approach Nathaniel Raymond, the director of the LHRL and say, would you like to include this in your report? Would you like to talk about what I found there? And he basically said, no, right, Jeremy. He was like, I'm not really interested in this, but it's a teddy bear. Like most of the camps we investigated. 
Yeah, he, um, in terms of war crimes, he pointed out, he said, you know, he's calling these camps where we bring, you know, where Russia brings ethnically Russian children to learn music and uh, be safe and eat food. Um, he calls those, those are war crimes. Those are war crimes. And then he says, the, the Ukrainians, you know, they, you know, maybe they sometimes they shoot POWs in the knees, but, you know, it's not really <laughs> something that um, we're focused on or, or something to that effect. And it's just so funny that um, one thing like bringing children to music school could be framed as a war crime and shooting POWs in the knees is something that um, war crime investigators are just not that concerned about. Yeah, there's an amazing part of your interview with Nathaniel Raymond where he said that his team had actually was looking at Russian strikes on Ukrainian grain silos. And they found that one silo exploded, generated such a massive explosion, like bigger than the Oklahoma City Federal Building, that they suspected strongly that there was a weapons munitions factory by being maintained by the Ukrainian military in that silo, and that they had essentially uncovered evidence of Ukraine planting military facilities in civilian infrastructure, which Amnesty International mentioned uh, in its report that it later apologized for. And uh, he said, well, but we can't prove that. We can't really prove that. So we're just going to move on to uh, this other thing that's supposedly much worse, which is Russian children getting free music mm -hmm. lessons. Exactly. And amazing. Um, I, I going to extend an invitation to Nathaniel Raymond to defend his report with me and Aaron and Jeremy. And, uh, you know, but he, on the record, made all of these statements, which discounted many of the statements he made on Anderson Cooper. And again, if you read the Yale HRL report, it's, it's not exactly what it's being presented as by the ICC or U.S. media. And why, why, Aaron, do you think this ICC arrest warrant is significant? I mean, it, what does it accomplish? Well, the, the same reason all of these, uh, you know, really consequential allegations uh, are so important that we debunk uh, or that we, at least that we assess is because they're used to further war. They're used to sabotage diplomacy. They're used exactly. to justify sanctions. You can, you know, that's the case in, in with the genocide allegations in Xinjiang. That's the case of these chemical weapons allegations in Syria. Back after the earthquake in Syria recently, you know, a few days afterwards, Ned Price at the State Department was asked whether or not the Biden administration is going to lift some of its sanctions and engage with the Syrian government. And one of the things that Ned Price said is that we can't engage with the government that gasses its own people. So these allegations are so foundational to the propaganda narratives needed to justify imposing actual harm on civilian populations uh, in these targeted countries. And same here with Russia. If you indict uh, a president of a country for war crimes, it makes it that much more difficult to make peace with them and to end this proxy war that has been so catastrophic. So you need these kinds of allegations to justify continued right. war because the, because the argument is, oh, we can't make peace with someone so diabolical. It's really yeah. actually a, a fig leaf to cover to continue diabolical policies that hurt people on all sides, especially in Ukraine, who are the foremost victims of this whole of this whole crisis. You've been listening to Gray Zone Radio. I've been your host, Max Blumenthal. To see more of our work and sign up for our newsletter, visit thegrayzone.com. That's the G-R-A-Y zone.com. This episode was produced by Christopher Weaver.